Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. I think the Israelis now are missing the main story, which is not violence, but the real impact by the Palestinians and Israel is their general the toxic hostility towards Israel around the world, especially. Hello, I'm Jonathan Tobin, Editor-in-Chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, JNS.org, and you're listening to Top Story, a weekly podcast where I analyze the most important stories happening in Jewish news around the world. Each week, I will break down politics, foreign policy, and culture to provide insights into what is going on behind the headlines. Hello, and welcome to Top Story. Thanks for joining us today. We had a very timely conversation for you about the Middle East, terrorism, and diplomacy with scholar Daniel Pipes. But before we start, I want to encourage everyone to like this video and podcast, subscribe to JNS, and click on the bell for notifications. Also, we would love to hear from you. Please write to us at editor at jns.org and let us know where you listen or watch the show and what you think about it. I also want to remind you that you don't have to wait a full week for more top story analysis. There is a daily top story podcast where I share more news and analysis with you about the most significant issues we're facing today. You can find the daily show under Top Story with Jonathan Tobin on the JNS channel on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now to today's program. As far as the international media is concerned, the latest terrorist atrocities in Israel are just part of an ongoing cycle of violence. That's a phrase that is ubiquitous in describing the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. It's used specifically because it seeks to portray events there as equally the fault of both sides. That fits in with a Western and very American notion that conceives of all disputes as essentially misunderstandings and capable of being resolved by patient negotiations ending in compromises that can give both sides all they need, if not all they want. That has been the operating principle behind American diplomacy in the Middle East. Indeed, every U.S. administration of the last half century, with the conspicuous exception of that of Donald Trump, has assumed that this is the only reasonable approach to the question of how to end the conflict between Israel and the Palestinian Arabs. The idea was that a two-state solution was the only rational end goal, and the only way to achieve it was to push Israel to make concessions to the Palestinians. And if this was a mere territorial conflict, in which the drawing of borders and in which two sides could eventually agree on compromises on the various issues that they could accept, this might be correct. In such a scenario, Secretary of State Antony Blinken's call for calm from both sides in the wake of last week's Jerusalem massacre, and his efforts to ensure that Israel did nothing that might make a theoretical two-state solution less likely, would be sensible. 
While the Biden administration claimed it supported Israel's right to defend itself and expressed horror over the Jerusalem attacks, its statements treated Israel's efforts to root out terror cells, such as last week's operation in Jenin against Islamic Jihad, as in some ways morally equivalent to Palestinian terrorism. The problem with this approach is that it is based on a fundamental misconception about why the conflict began and how it might be ended. If the two parties were equally at fault and equally unwilling to compromise, the entire history of the conflict, which is to say the century-old Arab war against Zionism and the Jews, would be different. A more realistic approach would be to recognize that Palestinian national identity is an inextricably tied up with that war on the Jews, and that this conception is the motivating force of Palestinian politics. It explains the intransigent refusal of the leading Palestinian parties, the Islamists of Hamas, who governed Gaza as an independent state in all but name, and the supposed moderates of Fatah, who run the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, to recognize the legitimacy of a Jewish state and agree to a permanent peace. It explains why terrorism and the shedding of Jewish blood is still the primary source of political credibility among Palestinian factions, as well as why the news of the murder of seven Jews outside of Jerusalem synagogue on International Holocaust Remembrance Day and the Sabbath set off a massive celebration in Palestinian cities and towns. What the United States needs to do is not only to drop the reflexive talk of a cycle of violence, but also to belatedly try to understand the cause of the conflict and to realize that it will only be ended when a sea change occurs in the political culture of the Palestinians that causes them to acknowledge defeat in their long war to eradicate Israel. Moreover, it requires American leaders to also stop pretending that this conflict isn't one about borders or settlements, but about something more fundamental about Arab and Muslim beliefs, about the rights of other peoples, like the Jews, to sovereignty in the part of the world they consider the realm of Islam. Now, to take a deep dive into these issues, we're very pleased to have with us today someone who has devoted his career to these issues and to understanding the Middle East and the Arab and Muslim world. Daniel Pipes is a historian and the leading contemporary American scholar on the Middle East. He has led the Middle East Forum think tank since its founding in 1994. He has taught Chicago, Harvard, Pepperdine, and the U.S. Naval War College. He served in five U.S. administrations, received two presidential appointments, and has testified before many congressional committees. He's the author of 16 books on the Middle East, Islam, and other topics, as well as an author of columns that have appeared in many leading publications. Daniel Pipes, welcome to Top Story. Thank you, Tom. Well, thank you for coming on and taking the time to join us today, Daniel. I really appreciate it. I want to start by asking you about the latest American responses to Palestinian terrorism, and I guess whether Secretary of State Antony Blinken's call for calm from both sides is going to help rather than hurt the chances of avoiding more violence. Well, let me put it in perspective. The Biden administration is perhaps the first since 30 years, since Oslo. 
that has not had some ambitious program to bring peace between Palestinians and Israelis. That's something that should be celebrated, because as you probably agree with me, those efforts have not been productive. They have, in fact, been quite counterproductive. So uh, while the Biden administration includes, I think, lots of people who are not friendly to Israel, uh, the overall context is, in fact, Within that, uh, who knows if the violence has been started in anticipation of the Clinton visit or just coincidental. In any case, it does put the spotlight on Palestinians rather than Iran, which is what the Israeli people are talking about. I don't think it matters too much. To answer your question directly, I don't think it matters too much. Uh, soothing words, saying calm on all sides, doesn't have much. No, no one will remember them. Nobody can Yeah, well, I know in the past several years, the Middle East Forum has attempted to create support for pushing for um, what you've called an Israeli victory in the conflict, rather than on insisting that the two sides compromise and agree to two-state solution, which even though the Biden administration hasn't proposed you know, a peace deal, uh, as, as you rightly say, as every other administration, including that of Trump, tried to do, um, they're still committed to this, you know, notion of a theoretical two-state solution and trying to sort of prevent Israel from sort of winning from, you know, the war on you know, Palestinian terror. Um, the assumption of many people in Israel and the United States has been that conventional victory in the sense of one side winning and one side admitting defeat is impossible between Israel and the Palestinians. Why are they wrong? It's what I call the theory of Palestinian supermen. The Germans could lose, the Japanese could lose, and many others. Uh, we could lose in Vietnam. But no, Palestinians are so radical, so determined that they can't beat us. No, obviously, I don't think that's the case. Palestinians have military strength to speak with, economy to speak with, charity to speak I'm not, it might surprise you, but I'm not against the two state solution in the abstract. Once the Palestinians are defeated, understandably, Except the Jewish state, it's, it's okay. Uh, it's one possible solution. So I'm not against it in theory. I'm totally against it today. Uh, my perspective is that just about a century ago, with the appointment of Hajime Hussein as Mufti of Jerusalem, the Palestinians entered into a period of what I call rejectionism, absolute refusal to accept any. Aspect of Judaism, Zionism, subsequent Israel, so radical that there is a plausible argument that Husseini influenced Hitler in the direction of the Palestinians. Hitler would have been content with expelling Jews. Husseini didn't want them in Palestine. He influenced Hitler to murder the Jews. Absolute rejection. Now, a hundred years later, it's not so absolute, but it's still there. That is the core of the conflict. Palestinians will never take it. Yes, for answer. Anything they're given, they'll just accept and demand more until there is no, no Jewish state, no Jewish presence. So that's the core of the problem. And that has to be addressed. And I would argue that the many other ideas, schemes, plans do not address that core, fundamental, hard fact. And I'm trying to. Yeah, well, I know some on the left still claim that the Oslo Accords were, in a sense, an admission of Palestinian defeat. 
I guess my question is, why are so many people in virtually every administration uh, unwilling to analyze everything that happened after Oslo and admit that the concept that it proposed was flawed? The Palestinian state, formerly, personally, Yasser Arafat, uh, write and speak words of acceptance. But literally with analogous of the ceremony on the White House lawn, September 13, 1993, Arafat indicated to his radio audience that he didn't want to This was just the stage for its elimination of the Jewish state. And everything he did subsequently over the next 11 years confirmed that interpretation. He was just doing what he had to do at the moment because the Soviet Union had collapsed, Saddam Hussein had lost, he was in a bad strait, so he did what he had to do. No sense was he sincere. No way did he accept the state of Israel. No way does his successor, Mahmoud Abbas, who to this day speaks of eliminating Israel. Yeah, um, that is that that is a basic fact that I think you know many observers just don't accept. Um, what you know, what is what is the uh, reason? Do you think? I mean, ideological, just you know, a Western idea that you know everybody's really the same. Why is it so hard for the entire U.S. foreign policy establishment, as well as the international community, to grasp you know these basic facts that you've just outlined for us? Avoided your question last time. I'll address it this time. I think it's so preposterous that someone could come to the White House lot in that fashion, Nobel Peace Prizes and the whole works, and yet not mean it. The, it just doesn't make sense. Also, I would argue that the Israelis, from 1993 to roughly halfway since then, 2008, themselves didn't pay attention. The Israelis were so confident this was the beginning of the economic era. This was the beginning of the internet era. The Israelis didn't care what the Palestinians did. It, it, I summarized that 15-year period by uh, a quote of Shimon Peres, who had many, many positions during those years, all very important, in which he said, let them talk. And to some extent, he could have said, but I don't think he did, let them act. Let them do what they want. We're not going to pay attention. We, the Israelis, have decided this conflict is going to be over, and we're going to go about doing it. And who cares what the Palestinians do? It was an act of overconfidence. It was supreme overconfidence. We, the Israelis, can decide this. And the Palestinians just have to go on. And the rest of the world said, oh, okay, the Israelis are, you know, they, they're, they're okay with this. Then why, why should we be doing it? But there was also the preposterousness of it. I mean, how can you do that? How can you save and accept Israel and not do so? I, I did an article in 1996 uh, called Two-Face Yasser, where I looked at his comments in English and other Western languages, and then his comments in Arabic and other Muslim majority languages, and they were startlingly different, as you would expect. It's a little bit like Brezhnev in the Cold War, and said one thing to us and another to the Soviet subjects. Yeah, I think you've, you've outlined that that's pretty clear, the failure to deal rationally with Palestinian intransigence isn't solely the fault of American or Western pressure on, you know, it's also an Israeli political problem. So I, I think your, your answer is that the reason why so many Israelis cling to these illusions about Palestinian intentions is essentially arrogance. And I think, you know, you, you're, you're 
you know, in listening to you, I was recalling, you know, uh, what uh, the late Yitzhak Rabin said, and indeed, he, I heard him say it just two weeks before he died on his last visit to the United States when he was interviewed by me and some other members of the Jewish press. And he, you know, the familiar um, line that Arafat would fight Hamas and the terrorists, and he would do so without the interference of the Israeli Supreme Court. Now, obviously, Arafat had no, while the Israeli Supreme Court remains certainly uh, a major factor inside Israel and a source of controversy, Arafat had no intention of fighting terrorism. He was actually fomenting, paying, planning terrorism himself. And while we assume Abbas is not planning uh, terrorism, he is still fomenting it. He is still paying for it in one way or another. Um, and yet that doesn't seem to impact, you know, the, as much as certainly the majority of the Israeli electorate has moved on from the Oslo illusions, um, there's still a significant portion that has not. And, um, you know, part of this struggle between, you know, the left and the right continues in that way. I would disagree. Um, so you look at the makeup of the current Knesset. Merits is out. Labor is four seats. So, and the Zionist, ignoring the Arab parties, on the Zionist side, it's what, 106 to 4. Uh, no, there really is no Oslo constituency in the That's the thought. I agree about that. But I would point, and maybe this would be more controversial than saying that the Israelis are overconfident between 1993 and 2008. I would say they're overconfident in the period 2008 to 2003. If the former period was the period of Shimon Peres, the latter period, obviously, is the era of Benjamin Netanyahu. And if I quote Peres about Let Me Talk, my quote for the past 15 years would be from Efron Indar, a strategist, Israeli strategist, whose work I respect. But he dismisses the Palestinians as Israeli, clever saying, strategic misses. What he's getting at is that if there are, in recent years, five, six, eight, ten deaths a year from violent attacks over this year 20, now that's not a large number in a population of close to 10 million. Many more tragedies. We just, we do. But I think the Israelis now are missing the main story, which is not violence. Yes, it's taking place, especially in the last few days. It's there. But the real impact of the Palestinians on Israel is they're generating a toxic hostility towards Israel around the world, and especially in the left. If you look at what the left doesn't like, it doesn't like how Israel treats the Palestinians, by which I mean residents of West Bank, Gaza, and Eastern Jerusalem. This may be controversial to say, but I think there's still an overconfidence among the Israelis. If the period of 1993 to 2008 was the era of Paris and let them talk, the period 2008 to 23 is the period, obviously, of Benjamin Netanyahu. And here my quote would be not from Netanyahu, but from a well-respected, someone I admire, a strategist by the name of Efrain Inbar, who calls the Palestinians a strategic nuisance. Now what he's getting at is that the Palestinians are killing some Israelis every year. In the recent years, it's been four, five, six. This year, it's been more. But in a population of 10 million, that's something to live with. That's fewer than the number of people die on roads in accidents. 
<clears throat> I disagree. I don't see the Palestinians as a strategic nuisance to Israel. I see that they are a formidable enemy, not in terms of the violence they engage in, but in terms of the hostility they generate towards Israel. The residents of Gaza, the West Bank, and Eastern Jerusalem are the center of attention of huge number of people around the world, especially on the left, and they despise Israel for that. And the Palestinians have this enormous hold. This is not some obscure liberation front. This is the most favored non-state actor, and it has immense impact on Israel. Now, lately, uh, President Boric came to office in Chile. President Lula came to office in Brazil. They both are of this disposition. Granted, not the most important two countries to Israel. But a signal that a Corbyn in the future or a Sanders type in the United States could well come to office. People who have this kind of view, even Jewish people like Sanders. So that's, I think, the great danger the Palestinians pose to Israel. That's the strategic threat, not the violence, but the enormous impact that the Palestinian narrative has on well-wishing people and some not so well-wishing around the world. It's primarily on the left, but not exclusively. Tyrants tend to be obviously Islamists, and many other Muslims are into Israel. So there's a huge body of people who despise Israel and who want to do it harm because of the Palestinian issue. Not because, for example, of the Iranian threat. That's not the issue. <clears throat> not the uh, internal Muslim population of Israel, that's not the issue. It's the residents of the West Bank, Gaza, and Eastern Jerusalem, known in short as Palestinians. I think that's a very important point. And I think it is one that Israel, certainly Israelis, and even uh, sort of the American Jewish organizations, even the Zionist, many of the Zionist ones, um, do ignore because they think of the UN as just a talking shop. Uh, the UN Human Rights Council as a nuisance, something that they can issue press releases denouncing, but that it doesn't have any real impact. And certainly the Israelis, um, as much as you know, the, you know they they get angry about that too. They also dismiss it. Um, and you know, in terms of their international diplomacy, you know, spend a lot of time you know talking about their various little triumphs. You know about the, you know, an Israeli official getting some post at the UN is a sign of, uh, of uh, you know, of, of, of victory. Um, but don't consider things like the, um, the uh, you know, the investigation that has been conducted, uh, the, you know, count, you know, the uh, inquiry conducted by the uh, Human Rights Council, which is, you know, sort of anti-Semitic to its core and clearly geared towards treating the creation and the existence of Israel as a crime. They don't seem to think that that has any strategic significance. So explain to us where that can lead. Why does it really present a threat to Israel um, that so many people are just ignoring? Right. The general attitude among Israelis is the world needs us. It needs our medical breakthroughs. It needs our ammunition, our arsenal. It needs our uh, culture. The world needs us. It needs our gas. Uh, we're strong. We've got diplomatic relations, we've got trade relations, we're flourishing. And I, I don't disagree with you all of that. But I would say that someone like Boric or Lula would happily dispense with Israel has to offer because they want to harm Israel. The Israelis 
to say it hasn't done us much damage and therefore it won't do us much won't do us much damage. And I said, just because it hasn't so far doesn't mean it won't in the future. I do believe that this generally left-wing anti-Zionism is growing. I think it started in the early 90s. I see four events as precipitating. In 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War meant that the bilateral American-Soviet rivalry came to an end and there was time to pay attention to other issues. 1992 was the Maastricht Treaty. It's complicated, but it basically this confirmed the value of working uh, through the European Union and working together and led to an increase of rejection of a state like Israel and its use of violence. 1993, of course, was the Oslo Accords. And 1994, often ignored, but perhaps the most significant of all these developments the election of Nelson Mandela to the presidency in South Africa. That meant that the apartheid issue was over. So where is the new apartheid state? And it's not completely a coincidence that this came to blossom in 2001 in Durban, South Africa. That's where the new apartheid state was designated. So this is on the increase now for some 30 years. And it, as I Proceeded, it keeps increasing. Just a few days ago, within Grand Central Station in New York City, it was virulent. I can't remember the slogans, but they were about ending Israel. Very, very specific. <laughs> this sort of thing didn't take place in past years. I think it's growing. I think the Israelis need to be cognizant of it. I think the way to deal with it is by addressing the Palestinian hostility to Israel. And I think the only way to do that is by confronting head-on the Palestinian rejection of Israel. It's not going to be easy, it's not going to be pleasant, but there is no alternative. Everybody else is coming up with ways to finesse this, to avoid this, and I'm saying you can't. you got to deal with it. Let me give you an illustration. Kahana. Kahana says kick him out. That's in some ways more radical than what I'm arguing. But say the Israelis do kick out. Say they kick out every last Muslim from Israel and the West Bank and Gaza and whatever else. Say they just the pure, you know, ultimate Kahana solution. Exactly how is that going to solve this problem? Yeah, it would solve the problem of violence. It's not going to solve the problem of hostility. Indeed, it would transform it. So many more people would be anti-Zionist than not today. It's a fool's errand. You can't do that. Annexation, what does that do? It doesn't achieve anything. It's purely symbolic, but it has a lot of people riled up. Well, I think, you know, you're pointing towards something that has been sort of a debate sort of beneath the surface about within the, the pro-Israel community, which is how concerned to be about the BDS movement and the rise of the intersectional left um, to a position of real influence within the Democratic Party. Um, a lot of sort of mainstream liberal Democrats say, you know, don't pay attention to the squad, you know, Ilhan Omar, Rashid Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and their many allies now, growing number of allies in Congress, saying they don't represent the mainstream, Biden and Blinken are the mainstream. Um, and yet, you know, the intersectional left. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, 
cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Controls academia. Um, it has a powerful voices within the, within the, um, the media. Um, certainly has, uh, you know, a, a toehold in popular culture. Um, that could really have an impact on the future of the U.S.-Israel relationship, couldn't it? It's not. Purely theoretical. It's not just a matter of the fact that the BDS movement hasn't laid a glove on the Israeli, you know, first world economy, but that there is a genuine threat to political support, even in the United States, uh, let alone Europe or anywhere else. And I would note that uh, President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken are far older than Rashida Tlaib, Ilham Omar, and their ilk. This is the future. The, the younger ones are the future of the party, and they are far more as an aggregate than the older ones. And indeed, all polling shows, and especially on the Democratic side, by age, you see a, a almost linear progression from the most friendly being the oldest and the least friendly being the youngest. Yeah. It's, it's in the culture. And they're going to come to power in this case. No, they didn't. Not yet, but I think it's, it's in the cards. And Israel is ignoring this. It, it is, an, I believe, analogous to the way Israel is ignoring, the Israelis were ignoring the Palestinian actions in Paris period. They're ignoring this in the Netanyahu period. And uh, I think it needs to be addressed. It is the foremost threat that Israel faces. It is the threat. Besides, of course, the nuclear weapons. But that's a completely different issue that you and I have no say in. Yeah, I think the the, the change. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I just going to say that you know, we, we, there's nothing we can do about the Iranian nuclear. There's a lot we can do about this delegitimization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we'll get to Iran in, in, in a couple of minutes. Um, I, I think that you know the sort of the counter argument from the left um, is that by focusing on the intersectional left and it's you know, its attitudes towards Israel, Israel becomes a partisan issue. Uh, it, it, it seems to be to be looking at it from the wrong point of view, but um, there is this, this notion of sort of uh, Israel being regarded as a red state um, and that uh, blue state America regards it as increasingly alien. You know, that plays into the debates about the new government of, in Israel. Um, and indeed, it, it plays into alienation among American Jews towards Israel because the majority of American Jews are very much, you know, where they live. They're blue staters. They're, they're, you know, vast majority of them are still voting for the Democrats and, and are liberal politically and regard as sort of a nationalist, you know, religious um, majority in Israel. Um, and one that, as you rightly say, rejects, you know, Oslo as, uh, as a failed pra- you know, paradigm. 
with uh, some, you know, with, 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 with a good deal of alienation. Um, it's very hard to overcome these attitudes and to try and shake people out of their illusions about these, uh, these ideas, aren't they? Isn't it? Indeed. I would point to there being some Jewish elements who subscribe to this radical design. It's a Jewish voice for peace would be one example. But they're a pretty small, marginal element. I think far more important in the case of Jews who pay attention to what's going on to is something like the grandfather clause with the right of return, right of sort of law of return, uh, and what's happening at the Western Wall and so forth. So I don't think that's really about the Palestinians. That's more internal, you know, the, the role of the Supreme Court and other such internal matters. I think most of the world doesn't follow what's going on at the Western Wall. Most of the world, insofar as it cares about Israel, either sees Israel as a blessing unto the nations or sees it as the new apartheid state that is more awful than any other state, including North Korea, uh, on, the, on the surface of the earth. We don't really know a whole lot. What's left? Tell us. Just follow one narrative or the other. Um, you know, sort of the counter, uh, you know, sort of the optimistic events of the last few years, uh, you know, focuses on the Abraham Accords, which represented a, a genuine uh, achievement um, um, on the part of, uh, you know, the uh, the Trump administration to achieve, to, to achieve a breakthrough towards uh, a wider normalization of relations between uh, Israel and the Arab and Muslim world. It happened because, at least for a short time, the U.S. gave up its obsessive focus on the Israel-Palestinian peace agreement. That doesn't seem like it's going to happen and realized that many in the Arab world were sick of being held hostage by Palestinian intransigence. Um, as someone who really understands the Muslim and Arab world, do you see the spirit of those accords spreading in the Arab Or is it the rampant anti-Semitism there as strong as ever, despite the desire of some Arab states and their governments, you know, likely authoritarian or, or you know, monarchical rulers, uh, to embrace a good relationship. I have a two-part answer. Part one is to argue that the Arab states were at war with Israel for a very conveniently remembered 25-year period from 1948 to 1973. It was war. It was tanks and planes. It was war. After 1973 to today, conveniently 50 years, the Arab states have tiptoed away. Other than two uh, hostilities, 1982 between Syria and Israel, 1991 Iraq and Israel, both minor and both very much lost by the Arab states, the Arab states have walked away. They talk, they clamor, but they don't actually go away. They've been gone. They, no, nobody seemed to notice, but they've been gone twice as long as they were engaged. They went out. The Arab states saw Israel as a vehicle for their own purposes. But once they unleashed it, in particular, Gamal of Damascus in the 1950s and 60s, they could no longer ride that tiger. They didn't like it. And indeed, to this day, they worry about the anti-Zionism that they had stirred up long, long ago, and they try and tap it. In their stead, shortly after 1973, came the Palestinians, who are far more determined and far more radical than the United States and far more sympathetic to the outside world. 
basically nobody bought Nasser's and others' lines. They were the victims. It is pretty implausible. Look at a map of the Middle East. But if you look at a map of the Israelis and the Palestinians, it is possible. So the Palestinians have replaced the Arab states. My second answer would be the Abraham Accords are great. Great. And may they flourish and grow and extend. But they have next to no impact whatsoever on what I was talking about earlier, about the anti-Zionism on the left. If you care about the Palestinians, if that's your focus, if you think you care about them, then what the United Emirates do, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco do has no relevance at all. None. And so while the Abraham Accords are great in themselves, they're irrelevant to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which is what I consider to be a strategic threat to Israel, along with nuclear yeah, I think that's a that's an important point. I want to get back to the Abraham Accords in a minute. But let me go back to the, what you've just referred to in this international campaign against Israel, um, which is far, as we both believe, far more virulent and far more dangerous than many Israelis seem to believe. Um, the question is, what can they, if 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 they did wake up to it, what can they do about it? Um, they're clearly outvoted of the United Nations. The UN Rights Council, there's no persuading, you know, the so-called human rights community, people in Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, um, you know, they're all, you know, dedicated anti-Zionists. They view Israel's creation as a crime. It's continuing everything it does as a crime. What does Israel do about this, you know, can't strong international force against it? Can't do anything. They're there. But my basic argument is that it's harder to be more Catholic than if the Palestinians acquiesce, accept that their 100-year-long battle has failed, then others eventually will come. So my Israel is fortunate in that its primary enemy is so weak, small in population, trivial economic and military force. The Israelis have an enormous number of tools at their disposal, obviously military tools, police tools, economic tools, but also other ones, cultural, religious, legal, and so forth. So it's my belief that if the Israelis decide that their goal is to break this Palestinian rejectionism and rally their strength to do so, they can. But they're not trying to. So right now, there is no policy. The closest thing one has is mow the lawn. Beat, the, beat Hamas so badly that they stay quiet for a few years. No, I would like the Israelis to adopt a policy that the residents of Gaza, West Bank, and Eastern Jerusalem understand that Israel is there, is permanent, is rich, is tough, is determined, and they have no chance. It's futile. You don't want your children to go off and blow themselves up because it, it serves no, no purpose. You've just lost a child. You haven't furthered the goal of uh, Palestinian Cause, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, switching back to sort of the Arab states, um, do you think Saudi Arabia, which is the focus of a lot of expectation from the pro-Israel community, um, will ever normalize relations with Israel? Or even after, say, uh, you know, the, a, an American administration comes in and is more interested in, in this idea than certainly the Biden administration appears to be. 
or does its status as the guardian of the Muslim holy places, will that always prevent it from, from complete normalization from Israel? Let's be imaginative. Let's flip that on its head. If you're guardian of two holy places, wouldn't you like to be guardian of three holy places? How about the Israelis approach the Saudis and say, hey, we've got something you might want to talk about. Uh, we don't like the Palestinians, and we don't like the Jordanians, by the way, either, being in charge of the Temple Mount. How about you? Wouldn't you like to add that to your portfolio? Let's talk. Let's talk about diplomatic relations. Let's talk about ending the status quo. I don't know what the details might be, but hey, the Israelis have all these strengths that they don't make use of, and that's sort of one of them. There are five competitors on the Muslim side to control the Temple Mount, the three I mentioned, Palestinians, Jordanians, Saudis, also the Turks, and also the Moroccans. Why not exploit that? Mm, that's an interesting idea. W would the Saudis be, do you think, you know, more uh, interested in preserving uh, peace than, say, the Jordanians, which, you know, the, the Jordanian regime, uh, you know, King Abdullah probably doesn't want any problems with Israel, but he's just as if not more, you know, he's maybe dependent on Israel in some ways, but he's very afraid of uh, the Palestinians, public opinion in his country, which is majority the Palestinian Arab. Would the Saudis do a better job, you think, uh, of keeping the peace and or even possibly uh, allowing uh, sort of uh, a less discriminatory policy on the Temple Mount? Abdullah is terrified of his, of his shadow. He's so weak. Uh, I don't think MBS is Mohammed bin Salman. I think he's ambitious and would welcome taking this on. Right? Speculation on my part, but those are two very different leaders. And Israelis would, would love to play ball and find some way to extend his influence. What could be grander from the, from the Wahhabi Saudi point of view than to gain control, Islamic control, not, not sovereignty, Islamic control over the Temple Mount? Well, I think that's that's uh, that's one of the best original ideas we've heard on this podcast. Um, let me ask you now about Iran. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, it is the leading Muslim power championing the war against Israel. Uh, it rejected the Biden administration's best efforts to resume the Obama policy of appeasement and is now embroiled in repressing a populist revolt against its theocratic regime and is also now involved in Russia's war in Ukraine. Do you believe the Iranian regime can survive all of this? And is its influence in the, in the region ebbing or is it still a very potent force through its terrorist auxiliaries? You gave a great review, but you missed one thing, which is that Khamenei is sick and could be gone any day. And that could enormously influence the future of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, the protests have been powerful, more powerful than any of the preceding ones. Uh, they will not lead to an overthrow of the government, but they have led to a sense of strength and determination not to live under this 
theocratic rule. Uh, every time the government bats down a insurrection of this sort, it's weaker, but it's still there. And it needs, the insurrection needs leadership. And by the way, the Palestinians were very significant in supporting Khomeini back 45 years ago. Uh, there has been no comparable Israeli help to the opposite, at least that I know of. Where are the Israelis? How come they aren't helping the opposition? Where are we, the Americans? Anyway, the Israelis in particular, where are they? Uh, until there is leadership like Khomeini provided that everyone can get behind, I think it'll be futile. Uh, that said, the Iranian regime is weak, weak economically, weak in terms of internal support, uh, weak in terms of Khamenei perhaps dying any day, uh, and in particular weak because of the new alliance with Russia. It's been very striking to me <clears throat> that so many actors on this world stage, and particularly Europeans, who shrug at Iranian activities, not just vis-a-vis Israel, but Saudi Arabia, and Iraq, and Yemen, and Lebanon, and Syria, they really get excited about Ukraine. Finally, there's something that got their attention. Okay, well, I'll take it. <laughs> but odd that none of the other places count. All right, I'll take it. Yeah. A, lot more a lot more people are upset about Iranian activities thanks to the drones that are slamming into Ukrainian hospitals. Good. Mm -hmm. Um, let's uh, before I, we get. I want to ask you about Ukraine, but before I do, um, Middle East Forum has been a leader in trying to focus um, public attention on uh, what uh, Qatar is doing in the Middle East. In in essence, taking over the the role that Sa the Saudis used to have as the primary funders of Islamist uh, fundamentalism around the world, uh, funding terrorism. Um, it it Qatar still seems to have this you know, equivocal role in, in that it's the ally of Iran and, and of terrorists, but it still is, has relations with the United States and the hosts, you know, the, the World Cup, um, it, it, you know, of soccer. Um, it, we don't seem to have made that much progress in, you know, other, other than in the fact that I don't think Jewish leaders are going there on junkets anymore. Um, Qatar still seems to have maintained its, its status and its ability to sort of be on both sides of the international equation. Where, where is that going? American Jewish leaders may not be going to Qatar on junkets, but Israeli soccer fans are going there, went there in the thousands. Um, yeah, the countries have been very clever. Uh, it's a tiny country. When you just take the subjects of the ruler, whatever, 300,000, 10% of the total population, roughly. And yet they have this very sophisticated policy going back now close to 30 years of playing off all the different sides. I remember a joke from the 1990s of which are the three great powers, Russia, America, and Qatar, way back then. Uh, they have used their phenomenal amount of money to good effect, and uh, they get away with a great deal. Uh, we have been, as you say, working hard on this in particular, not so much myself, but my colleague, Greg Roman. Uh, we've been looking at their charitable donations. We've been looking at their World Cup activities and the like. 
and it's it's roughly analogous to the Saudis in the old days. I mean, it's it's the other Wahhabi state, and they they, they just have masked it as well better than the Saudis do, and they're getting away with it. Um, I hope that by continued research and by making this information public, uh, more and more people understand, particularly Americans, but around the world, uh, the nefarious role of the Qatari state in uh, Islamization or Islamism, in uh, economics, in politics, diplomacy, funding violent jihad, and so on. Turning our eyes uh, sort of a broader lens uh, outside of the Middle East, uh, you, you already referenced Ukraine. Um, the Biden administration is treating the war in Ukraine as its number one foreign policy and defense priority. What's your opinion about America's role in this war? And do you believe that the focus on Ukrainian territorial integrity, uh, victory for Kiev, <laughs> as opposed to victory for Israel uh, over Putin and the, the Russian regime, um, assuming that you know, that uh, victory there is achievable in the same way that victory for Israel is, the only way to end the Middle East conflict. Where, where do you see this heading? And do you think this, in, you know, and as well as factoring in the, the pressure on Israel to uh, join the conflict in one way or the other? I'm all in for Ukraine. And uh, I approve of the Biden administration. Go a step or two further. I'm ready to send them fighter jets. I'm glad we're now about to send them tanks. Uh, this is crucial. It's, Ukraine has a long and tortured history, but for me, the current era began almost exactly a year ago, and that's what we should focus on, not the sins and problems of Ukraine historically. And I don't worry about corruption. Yeah, of course, you send over billions and billions, there'll be some corruption. But from the American point of view, this is peanuts, this is pennies. This is absolutely crucial. Uh, from, uh, concerning Israel, I think one has to understand that Israel is in a bind and has concerns about the Jewish population of Russia, has concerns about the Russian domination of the Syrian airspace, <clears throat> and has to tread carefully. Understood. We can't be all in in the way that we can be and that the Poles can be and the British can be. Um, I understand that. They should do their best, uh, keeping in mind that they have to maintain open lines to Moscow. Mm. Do you see Russia, especially in the wake of its you know, the rather dismal performance of its military, do, do you see it as, the, uh, as as much of a geopolitical threat as perhaps we would have a year ago before you know, its invasion didn't go so well? Um, and how does that factor into, into this discussion? No, it certainly is not the same threat that it was then. Uh, it's been astonishing that almost every single decision that Putin has made has turned out badly. Everything. Uh, NATO is stronger. Uh, Ukraine is much more of a country. Uh, his own economy is much weaker. He's lost so many people, skilled people, and so forth and so forth. Uh, I see long term the prospect of Russia becoming a virtual satellite of China. Uh, Russia meets China, the Chinese are going to drive a hard bargain, and they're going to get a lot from it. So I see this in the context of a really serious international rivalry, which is the United States and China, and this is to China's benefit. 
do you see that becoming more likely if Ukraine actually wins something approximating, you know, an actual victory over Russia? You know, it's not clear to me how either side ultimately wins or loses at this point. Um, seems something somewhat of a stalemate. Um, does China profit from this one way or the other? I think what whatever happens, or, or put it just this way, the worse Russia does, the more China gains. Mm-hmm. No, that's 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 a daunting uh, thought. Um, your focus is primarily on educating and has been on educating Americans about foreign policy issues. I think that's always been a heavy lift in a nation that is not always that interested in the rest of the world. Today, outside of Ukraine, I am not always on Ukraine. I think both major parties are less interested in foreign policy than ever. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about America's role in the world and whether we'll uh, be able to continue to defend its interests and values abroad? We Americans, and more broadly Westerners, have been quite blasé, particularly since the collapse of the Soviet Union. We prevailed. There's no real threat. And it will take something to shake us. Ukraine has shaken a lot of people. We, uh, If you put aside the horrible humanitarian aspect of it, strategically, it's a great gift. Sweden and Finland are obvious examples, but more broadly, the West has waken up to the fact that real wars can still take place. It's not always us against some uh, little force in Somalia. Uh, real wars can take place. And I think that has woken some people up, but I don't know if it's enough. Uh, I think there's a certain attitude of, of overconfidence. We are so strong, we can get what we want. The Chinese, the aggressiveness of the Chinese uh, is helpful in waking Westerners up. But I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's still, I think, an open question whether we will wake up or not. I, I've been heartened to see that, particularly in the case of Ukraine, the Democrats have been very strong. Indeed, they've been stronger than the Republicans. Not been heartened by the Republican response so much, but very heartened by the Democrats. That the party that for so many decades after Vietnam was essentially weak on defense policy is now the stronger of the two parties. And probably the stronger of the two parties vis-a-vis China as well, and certainly vis-a-vis Turkey. So here we have three important countries where the Democrats are standing tougher than the Republicans. That's a big surprise. I think in the case of Ukraine, they may have a lot to do with the ideas about Trump and Russia collusion and the Trump impeachment. But um, I think you're you're certainly right. The Democrats seem more. May, may I just reverse that? Republicans. May I reverse that? I don't think it's about the impeachment so much as the fact that Putin has appealed to conservatives. In the notorious words of Tucker Carlson, Vladimir Putin never called me a racist. There's an admiration on the part of some conservatives for Putin, standing out for good old traditional values. I think that's more the appeal than what you alluded to. I think the Republicans are weaker because they don't like the Democrats who are in power now and feel some sympathy for Putin. Well, um, those are, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. Uh, clearly, um, 
a couple more years until we have a chance for one different administration, different approach. We'll see who's who's supporting wars then. Uh, Daniel, thanks so much for coming on today and for your insights on these very important issues. We also want to thank our audience. Uh, please remember to tune in every day for Top Story Daily Edition. Uh, whether you're listening to us on Spotify or any of the other podcast platforms, or watching us live on Facebook or Twitter, or on the JNS YouTube channel or on JBS TV. Please like and or subscribe to Top Story, click on the bell for notifications, and give us good reviews. Please write to us at editor at jns.org and let us know where you listen or watch the show and what you think about it. And remember, keep reading and thinking for yourself, and we'll see you again next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.